I need to win that title again. I need another Olympic victory. I need uh, something to substantiate that I'm a, a decent human being. And so they keep driving and they never get fulfillment. And what we've learned in our data collection was that sustained excellence, sustained achievement, and one where you actually feel very fulfilled is one that's driven by what we call these moral and ethical assets at the highest level. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Today's guest is world-renowned performance psychologist, researcher, and author of 17 books, Jim Lair. He's the co-founder of the Johnson & Johnson Human Performance Institute. And get this, in his career, he's worked with 17 number one athletes. That's just amazing. He's going to share a few of those stories with us today, and we're also going to dig into what Jim calls the hidden scorecard and how that plays into performing at a high level. Enjoy the show. We are honored and humbled to welcome Jim Lair to the Forge. Tara and I pride ourselves in really doing our homework and being prepared for our guests. And so in that process, we, we get to, it's almost like we get to know our guests before they even come on the air. And that's certainly the case with Jim. As I was doing research, and I think Tara would agree, it's almost like now that I'm meeting Jim, I'm like, I feel like I already know you. And one of the things that came out of that research is I'm like, man, Jim and I could sit down. I don't know, Jim, if you're if you're a beer drinker, but we could sit down and have a couple <laughs> beers because I think there's a lot of things that we have in common or we think alike. And, and I know Tara's right there with me. You know, all the way up to including I'm writing a book right now, and you're going to love this, Jim. I'm writing a book right now. One of the chapters is talking about heroism. And mm. you know who I use it as an example? Captain Sullenberger. Oh, and I'm like, I, I feel like, Jim... I'm going to have to throw my chapter away or rewrite it. <laughs> but that just kind of gives you an idea. I, I, I love that that we are aligned on so many things. So, Oh, that's great. Fantastic. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe some of that will come out today. So let's get this party started. Let me ask you this, Jim, because I'm really curious. You just mentioned off the air that you, you get, I think you do one or two podcasts a week. If I were to ask you, how many podcasts have you been on? What would be your guess at that? I'm not even sure. You know, I've started doing a lot of them since the release of the book, Leading with Character. And the reason I really wanted to, the last couple of years of my life, and particularly the, the last 10 years, the last decade of my life has been devoted to try to understand the role character plays in human performance. And it's such an area of kind of unusual conclusions for most people. It was for me. It was a surprise to me that the data we collected at the Human Performance Institute led us, there was nothing in my training as a psychologist or anything else that led me to this space. I love data and I love big data sets and looking at trends. And it was the data that led us there. So I would say since uh, the book was released, I, I probably do two or three a week. And it was released uh, right at uh, the first of the year. So, you know, I, I've, ne I've never <clears throat> done so many podcasts as I have during <laughs> COVID-19. It's like everything is remote. I'm doing keynotes and everything else remotely. And I've always loved connecting, you know, kind of in, in person with individuals. But, you know, we adapt and we're I now can kind of feel at home and try to s sense what the audience is like and what's going on. You have a little bit of that interaction, but it has been a sea change for just about everybody, I think. And it certainly has been in, in the way I inter intersect with people who are interested in the area that I'm really exploring in my own life, professional life. We've never done so many podcasts either since COVID-19, Jim. <laughs> Uh, it's when we know. started, yeah. 
I think we're, us we're and like everyone else. Two, two million of our friends are all doing podcasts. You know, Jim, I had the opportunity to go back and read one of your older books, and that's the Toughness Training for Sports. And mm-hmm. and you've had the the really great pleasure of working with so many number one athletes. In fact, I think 17 number one athletes throughout Mm. your career. You talk a lot about gold medal speed skater Dan Jansen, one of my absolute idols since I was a little, little girl, which is tennis great, Chris Everett. I was absolutely obsessed with her. And, and many more. And, you know, with the stories that you must have with, with working with these athletes, we're just curious, do you have a, uh, a favorite story of a very challenging person to work with, or maybe a, an exceptional outcome that you were just so proud of where they came from and where they went that you might share? You know, probably the, my favorite story is the Dan Jansen story, because that was against all odds. And everyone said he will go down as the greatest choker in sports history, that he was the most talented speed skater on the planet. And he proved it over and again, except when it came to an Olympic venue. And uh, he was one of the most extraordinary human beings. I just really, some people you just really like. And he's just a good person, a good family person. He cares about people. And when he was de, kind of dethroned from his mission on the death of his sister on the very day of his 500-meter race, and he fell to the ice, and then he fell again in the 1,000. And thus began the saga of the heartbreak kid. And he then, his agent called me and said, if you don't intervene, this is going to be a tragic ending for him because he can't get this, you know, this, this really curse off his back. And so I said, yes, I'd never worked with a speed skater. I'd worked with pair skaters and figure skaters and a bunch of other people on ice and lots of hockey players, but never a speed skater. And uh, so, you know, we really started working on trying to understand what it would take for him to leave all the baggage behind. And uh, it was a huge lift for him. And he did, I have every single one of his training logs for two years. And every single day he committed to try to bring a whole new perspective to himself. And I asked him what he wanted. And he said, I would like to have some kind of an Olympic, even if it's whatever, a bronze or whatever. And I would like to break the world record, which is 36 seconds in the 500. And I said, I want you to write at the top of your training log, 3599 for six months. And he did it every day and imagine that happening. And uh, I also wanted him to write, I love the 1000 meter, which He hated the 1,000 meter because it was a longer venue and it wasn't something he really enjoyed that much. And and he said, I don't, that's a lie. I don't love the 1,000. I said, I know, but if you, you got to train your brain to embrace it and it will, at some point, something will change. And once you start, because I am absolutely convinced you can be as great in the 1,000 meter as you are in the 500. And before the uh, final race of his life. He had broken the 36 second barrier three times, once at 35.76. And at Albertville, he came in 26th in the 1000. And two years later at Calgary, he broke an Olympic record. There were seven, seven athletes who had, you know, better times than he had ever had, including Kevin Scott, who had the world record. And he blew by all of them and won an Olympic, uh, Olympic gold medal and broke an Olympic record. And that was two years almost to the date that he came in 26th. And he didn't do that well in the 500. He had a, a minor slip. He didn't fall. But the 500 is very unforgiving. And, uh, and I, he didn't know I was in the crowd. I flew to Lillehammer because I, I didn't attend most of his races. And I didn't want him to think that, you know, in any way that I might add more pressure because he wanted to do, because we were really quite close after two years. 
And so when and I was there because I knew that if he didn't do well in the 500, we'd have four days to prepare for the thousand. And so I when he when he didn't, he came in eighth in the 500 and I, I didn't have any badges. I had no security. I had nothing. And I had to fight my way. And finally, I yelled to Dan as he was going up the stairs, leaving the ice. Dan is Jim. <laughs> and he turns around and says, oh, my God, letting through. What are, I didn't know you were here. And I said, I didn't want you to know. And then we had four days to prepare for the thousand. But that celebration that we had afterwards, and it was one of the greatest crescendos I've ever had in my life. Not for me, but for him. Because it was, it was a story that ended the way it was supposed to end. On the final day of his life, he did everything a human being could do to make that work. And that is the story of life. It's never over. And had Dan not won an Olympic medal, he was going to be fine because he recognized what a gift speed skating had been. He was, he was a joy to work with. I've had other clients. I didn't work with Andre Agassi after a certain time, but Andre was at the Nick Bellatory Tennis Academy. I was there for six years. And he was an angry young man. He was difficult to communicate with. He was image was everything. And I really did everything I could to make a connection and really didn't have. I mean, he would listen. He's one of the smartest kids I've ever seen and had the greatest eyes and hands of any athlete I'd ever witnessed before. And I've been around some great ones. And, and all of his mentors had told him that if he became a superstar with fame and money and privilege, he would be happy because he was so unhappy. And he became number one in the world and he became probably more miserable. He actually, he's, in his book, Open, and I would recommend anyone who wants to read a really in-depth story. It's brilliantly written, and it is the true story of Andre. And he dropped to 141 in the world, and he and his, his physical trainer, Gil Reyes, kind of stepped back and did a reset, and he jettisoned all the glitz and all the entourage and everything else. He was losing in the challengers, and he reestablished a new purpose for playing tennis. And he continued to play tennis, but for a different reason. And this, for me, is the most extraordinary part of the story. And so he actually realized that, you know, playing tennis for him to make him happy was very unfulfilling. And so he decided to dedicate all of his fame, all of his glory, all the money that he could to building a charter school for young kids in Las Vegas that would help these kids have a life that he kind of always wanted, you know, to kind of help kids and raise them up and have a great opportunity. And he went back to number one in the world and he endeared himself to the public in ways that it's almost indescribable. He met Steffi Graf, he married Steffi and she's an extraordinary woman. They are so happy. And I mean, it's one of the great stories for me of kind of redemption that he realized really that it really wasn't about him, that when he devoted himself to others, something magical happened inside of himself. I have so much admiration for Andre and what he went through, but that's a different story. And I wasn't with him at the end of that, but I tried everything I could to help him at the beginning, maybe some of that work. But I have so many stories about so many people from boxing and just about every arena of sport. And all those people are etched in my mind. I still remember vividly almost every detail. And I feel very fortunate because it is their lives that help me learn about how the human system is engineered. The, those stories, I, I love that you share those, Jim. I mean, I, I watch these in real time. You know, the Dan Jan, I'm a huge Dan Jansen fan, and I remember getting choked up when he yeah. got the news that his sister had died just before he was to Three go out hours on the ice. Before. Yeah, and it's like, how do you? I, I get the idea of compartmentalizing, but I don't know how you compartmentalize that. He was crying during the race, yeah, and he he was, you know, he decided to go ahead and skate because his father had said. He was really thinking, he felt so guilty that he wasn't with her when she passed. And, and he said, I'm going to come home. I'm not going to skate. And his father said, what would Jane want you yeah, to do? Yeah. And he thought about it. He said, she would want me to skate. And he said, 
skate. Yeah, excruciating story. And then, you know, the Andre Agassi. I, I used to live in Las Vegas, and so Andre Agassi was, was kind of like a cult hero in Las Vegas because that's where he was from. And I remember yeah. he, was, he was kind of a rebellious guy early in his career, and then he turned into a whole different person, like you say. And it, it kind of le- – I feel like this leads a little credence to your newest book, leading with character, right? So we look at somebody like Andre Agassi – that maybe was lacking a little bit of character early in his career and then found it later. And, and it just seemed like, you know, of course I don't know the guy personally, but it seemed like he was just more at ease and, and just a better person later in his career. But here's the thing. He still had success. And so I, that, that's a fascinating thing to me. Do we need to be a jerk to have success? A lot of people get this idea that uh, character has no place when we talk about elite performance. What do you say to that, Jim? Well, I spent a lot of time looking at these character assets that drive excellence. And I have divided it, as you know, into two categories. Uh, One is performance character assets, strengths, muscles, and moral and ethical strengths or muscles, assets. And, you know, you could become an extraordinary achiever and have success, extrinsic success at an unbelievable level. If you have a boatload of these performance assets like discipline and focus and concentration and, you know, all the things that resiliency and positivity and on and on, and there's no moral or ethical consideration in any of those. You can take shortcuts, you can cheat your way, but if you have enough of these, and you have talent, you're gonna rise to the top of the mountain. But what we looked at was, what is the sustainability of that? If you got there and you had to kind of walk over dead bodies to get there, you took a lot of shortcuts, it's going to be very unfulfilling. Shortly thereafter, you're gonna start feeling like, hey, wait a minute, is this it? I, I need to do it again. I need to win that title again. I need another Olympic victory. I need Uh, something to substantiate that I'm a a decent human being. And so they keep driving and they never get fulfillment. And what we've learned in our data collection was that sustained excellence, sustained achievement, and one where you actually feel very fulfilled is one that's driven by what we call these moral and ethical assets at the highest level. For me, that's the the greatest marker of a human being is the way they treat others, honesty, integrity, you know, caring, compassion, kindness, gratitude, gratefulness, you know, a sense of humility. And when you get all of those together and you combine that with great success, it's a grand slam home run. Most people never think about those. Some coaches got it, like John Wooden in basketball or maybe Coach K and basketball. And I have a number of coaches that have really connected with that. And it's been an unbelievable run for them. But most people don't make that connection between being a good person and being a high achiever. They seem to be in two categories. And it's uh, it's unfortunate. And that's partly why I'm trying to, to, to bridge that understanding so that, you know, people get it because the highest, uh, most important thing at the end of our life that we're going to be holding ourselves accountable for are those moral and ethical assets where you are caring, kind, loving, supportive, good person to be around as you inspire others. Even though you might have achieved unbelievable things, if those are not there, you're going to feel very, very empty at the end of your life. Do you think this is something that has evolved over time for you as well, Jim? Do you find that your feelings on this this topic kind of have evolved as you've gotten older? And maybe it's it's what we what happens to all of us as we start to get a little bit older. We come around to character and our legacy being a little bit more important. I, I think it's both, Tara. I really think that as we get older, we begin to realize, hey, wait a minute, the things that we've been chasing may not be quite as critical or as important to who we are. And really, we start looking at who am I becoming as a consequence of the chase? And do I like who I am? Is this the person that is the best version of me that that is possible? And so every chase 
changes us in some way for better or for worse. And, and then the other thing that surprises me, I never dreamed uh, as a psychologist who, you know, really coached the Human Performance Institute, and we were all about performance. I mean, we, we made money when people did these extraordinary things. And for me to start talking about character in a performance context is like, I have to pinch myself because the data led us there and maybe some of my evolutionary processing helped me to get there. And it started to make a lot of intuitive sense as well as sense that there's a, there's a, a really interesting area of science that's helping to, to clarify a lot of this. But even evolutionary forces, I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, we are who we were. And our ancestors, in order to survive, had to bond together and had to create a connection, a support, a taking care of one another. Because if you didn't, you know, your, your group may not have the food or the shelter. And those who were the one-offs who went out and just did their own thing, who had this strong urge for autonomy and independence, they didn't survive. You survive because you actually were trusted People could depend on you, you cared for others, and everyone became your family. And that I think is deeply embedded in our DNA today. And I call it the hidden scorecard. And if, if you don't really address that, and I spent years at the Institute trying to get at that, what, what was that all about? Because people felt unfulfilled even though I had had the most miraculous careers, and they were, the, they were the shining star beyond anything they'd ever hoped that they could get to, and they were deeply unfulfilled in some way. And so we started going into that and, and asking people, really, at the end of your life, what's going to matter? What do you want in your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered? And almost never did they say that I was a three-time Olympic champion or that I won four, you know, major events in golf or I won Wimbledon in tennis or whatever it is. What was important at the end of their life were things that they never actually even thought about that much. You know, that you cared for other human being. And as, as you've heard many times being said, that people... People may, may forget you or forget your name, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And, you know, whether your children, your spouses, your connections, you have an impact on every single person that you meet in some way. And the, the accumulation of that over time becomes your legacy. And that will be the scorecard that you will hold yourself accountable for at the end of your life. And most have no idea that that is actually the ultimate marker of a truly successful life in their eyes at the end. Yeah, I appreciate that you call it a hidden scorecard because here's the deal. Both Tara and I work with with younger folks. We we both work at the university, and, and so we get to see the world through their eyes a little bit. And, and I also know what I was like back, you know, when I was twenty uh, something. And Me too. That, that wasn't my scorecard. <laughs> that wasn't my scorecard, Jim. I, I was looking at, oh, I can't wait to make my million. And, you know, I was ambitious and, and I, don't, I wouldn't say I was a jerk, but I was, I was selfish. I wasn't really out to help anybody else. It was about me getting to the top of the mountain, not helping somebody else. I think up that's, the top. I think that's the story of all of us. And well, you know, I think that's a can great, we, can we great get that point. message? Can we What's get that? that message through to the younger generation? Figure this out now. Don't Earlier. wait till you're as old yeah. as me. That's the whole point. I'm, I'm starting I have a couple initiatives called the Youth Performance Institute, where we're trying to get m- these messages to youth at the earliest possible stage. I work with a number of young people now, as young as nine and 10, and I'm blown away by how they suck up these messages and how they actually internalize them have a young boy who was in a terrible accident and an extraordinary athlete, and he thought his life was over because, you know, his body was very, very severely damaged in the accident. And, but 
you know, he's really gone into the sense of purpose and dedicating himself. And I mean, the transformation is hair raising. And I think the earlier we can get, but parents have to understand this as well, because they're all duped into thinking that if they are going to be a successful parent, they'll be they'll be held accountable for how, how high their son or daughter achieves, these extrinsic markers, how much money they make, what neighborhood they live in, what cars do they drive, what kind of educational degree they have. That's how they're going to judge their success as a parent. But when it gets down to it, those are not the markers at all that will be really the ones that they'll be held accountable for at the end of their life. It'll be something very different. How do we begin that conversation with younger people? I mean, how would you coach that first step into, and when I say younger, I don't mean uh, you're talking about much younger, but as Ron mentioned, you know, the, the young folks in their 20s, how do you begin that conversation? Do you think about switching from the achievement scorecard mentality, because that is so important to a lot of us in our 20s, to at least making some space for the hidden scorecard. And can you just dig in just a little bit more on exactly what your concept is behind the hidden scorecard? Yeah, I mean, we, we love scorecards. You know, without us, we need something to measure whether we're going in the right direction or not. And society has pretty much determined the scorecard we're all going to use. And that is, you know, money, fame, attention, you know, extrinsic, if you can get to have an advanced degree from an Ivy League institution and on and on. And parents are all caught up in it. And they say that over and over again to their kids. And yet there are very few forces that are actually operating that are tangible that would suggest that, you know, your character as a person is by far more important than your achievement. And so it it really requires a reordering of all the inputs that people have in their lives. And as parents get really into this, they begin to see it. And what I I probably spent 30 to 50% of my time I'm working with athletes, I end up working with the parents. And once they get it, they can have the, the influence that they really wanna have on their sons and daughters because they're often the ones that are pushing extreme measures to succeed at any price, even if it means cheating, even if it means being, you know, almost abusive on the part of parents or, you know, taking whatever shortcuts are necessary for them to get to the top of the mountain. Getting to the top of the mountain is the scorecard that represents success as a parent and success as a, as a boy or girl. So, we have a lot of uh, conditioning that we have to kind of go against. And so what I do with young, with young folks as well as anyone, I, there's a quote by Mark Twain, and that is the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you found out why. And I say this to young kids. I say, you know, life without a purpose or the wrong purpose becomes a nightmare, a complete nightmare. It leads to chaos. If you don't have anything, if you had no purpose for today, nothing that actually is motivating you to do anything, and that becomes, it's often what happens to people in retirement. They literally come apart because they don't have a purpose. It's just to kind of veg and to hang out. And So I say to the kids, let's begin to define, you won the lottery of life against all odds. Why are you here? What what is this all about for you? What is the meaning that this gift of life and what by the time you are finished on planet Earth, what do you hope happens with your life? I'd like to know what do you value the most? Oh, I value winning. I value tournaments. I value competition. I value being on and on. And I said, okay, so then I will take them to the end of their life and I will ask them, it's all over now. And even crafting what they would like for people to say about them. And I take them through this navigational system. I say, when you get in, when you get in your car and you want to find a destination, let's say you're a long way from where you live 
and you're not sure how to get back, what do you do? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to program where home is. You have to program the destination. If you don't know where it is, you're not going to get there. You'll never find it. And then you need to know where you are now relative to that. I call that truth, that the GPS system in your car will pick that up. And then you're going to have to, every single uh, opportunity you have, make, make some progress, take action to get closer to where your destination is. Well, what if you don't know your destination? There are multiple objectives in life, and some are to win, win trophies, win championships, get straight A's, whatever. But then I keep pushing that more important than any of those is who you are becoming as a consequence of those pressures and stress. And I really want to know who you are when you're most proud of yourself. When you, are, when you believe this is the best you have to offer the world, when you really feel good about yourself, and they write that out and they describe it. And then I ask them to go to the end of their life and to write down the six words they want inscribed on their tombstone. And that those are the things that most they want to be remembered for. And nobody puts down titles or you know, anything extrinsic. And that begins to reset what I call their calibration. And I say, we're all trying to get home, all of us. And, but if you don't know where home is, you know, it's really hard. You probably won't find it. And I can guarantee a home is not going to be winning titles. But what if you made winning titles and all the stress, if you kind of recruited all of that stress and turmoil and challenges and adversity and, and really disappointments, into becoming a person of extraordinary performance and ethical character. And then if you become number one in the world, it's icing on the cake. And if you don't, the sport experience was magnificent for you. Dan Jansen would have been half the person had not he gone through all that adversity and risen above it. And he actually used it to grow up and become a more, you know, a more responsive, reflective, a better son a better father, a better parent. And winning a gold medal was icing on the cake. And for me, that's the, that's the recalibration that young people need to be exposed to often. And you've got to get the parents putting in, and even the coaches. Coaches, I spend endless hours working with coaches, trying to help them understand what an unbelievable opportunity they have for teaching character through sport, and that if they get it right, the kids will win more, but they'll win in a way that sustains itself throughout their lifetime. So it's like we've got to change a lot of what society has conditioned us to believe is true success. Yeah, boy, I'm, tu- I'm tuning into a word that you've used a lot here. I-, I love everything you're saying, by the way. But one word you're using a lot that, that uh, it's a word that, that I also gravitate toward is fulfillment. I, I don't like the yeah. word happiness. I feel right. like happiness is way too abstract. It's different for everybody. And what does that look like? And I say, and I'm not the first to say this, but if we find fulfillment, happiness will come along for the ride. And so that's the kind of the way I look at it. And so I'm going to ask you, Jim, and I think you've already said this, but maybe maybe there's more here to unpack. Are we too wrapped up in achievement? Sometimes I do a thought experiment with students and clients and say, what if we went through life striving for goals, which I believe is important, but we never achieved any of those goals? Could we still call that a good life? Does the achievement of the goal define a good life? Or is it that journey, you know, kind of what you're talking about, that transformation, that growth, pursuing the goal is way more important than actually getting it. What do you, I mean, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I I think, you know, Ron, you have it completely wired up right that we need to chase. We were born to chase. And if we're not chasing something, you know, we're, we're really, and what we're chasing is growth. What we're chasing is more of a sense of I'm here for a purpose. I want to make a positive contribution in some way. And I would like to feel fulfilled as a consequence of that. And, you know, we, there, so much of life we had no choice in, none. What continent we were born in, what parents we have, our skin color, whether we 
were born into wealth or poverty, you know, what century we were born into. It just goes on and on and on. There are just so many things we had no control over. But one thing we have control over, and that is what we do with this life that we have. And if we can make sure that we understand that that is a choice that we make every single day. And the choice is about me versus making a contribution while I'm here, making others and the world better. And if it's all about me, you're probably in for a very rough ride at some point because it, it does not fulfill you. You will always be chasing. It's kind of an addictive process. On the other hand, if you realize you're chasing to do something that's actually a, a noble quest and has very little to do with you, you actually have an opportunity to make a contribution. I call it a, a self-transcending purpose. Something magical happens. And the magic is what happens to you. You chase, you're not gonna sit safely on the sidelines. If you fail, you simply marshal new strength and understand that, hey, th this is uh, something I need to understand and to get stronger, and it's not going to deter me from my mission. I have a mission in life, and I'm going to fulfill it, and I will continue on that quest until my last breath. So you actually find that obstacles actually create opportunities to grow and to find new strength that you never would have had. I wrote a book called Stress for Success. Everyone thought I was completely nuts because it was produced so many years ago. And I said, stress is actually the stimulus for all growth in our lives. And if you don't have stress in your life, you're probably not gonna grow much. And, you know, to have a fulfill, we wanna be all used up. We want our life to be full. We wanna be going after something to make sure that you know, the, the, whatever length of time I was here, I dedicated myself to something that was truly, you know, giving the, the world an opportunity to be slightly better because of my presence. That there's something here that I, I added to planet Earth. And in, in that understanding comes a great sense that, you know, I have value. There's something valuable in me and I am going to, I'm going to continue that as long as I can. And so for me, I, I want to keep chasing and I want to continue to grow and understand because so much I only wish I had known what I know now when I was beginning this company or even earlier when I was doing all this data collection. But it took years and now I'm thinking, if it took me this long to learn it, why don't we give it back in ways that you know, people don't have to wait, you know, 40 or 50 years to get this, this Ruby cube figured out because it is, it, it's so contra to how we are raised and what we have come to be kind of normal in the everyday life. This is kind of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to chase and find fulfillment in you know, meeting our own needs and accumulating as much as we can before we leave. And it just, that has not been our understanding from all the, we had over 400,000 now people go through the Institute and we tracked them for years and years. And that was the database that gave us so much of this insight. Wow. And I love the, <laughs> I love the Rubik's Cube analogy. It makes me think you're probably, I mean, I, I'm assuming you're seeing what Ron and I are seeing just on a smaller scale than you, which is the last 15 months of a global pandemic. It's like everyone's been handed their Rubik's Cube. They've pulled it out 100%. of the closet and they're all sitting around at the same trying time to figure trying it to out. figure it out, right? I mean, hopefully our younger audience knows what, what, what a Rubik's Cube is. <laughs> Right, right. Well, I, as you're very well known as being the father of mental toughness and mental toughness, resilience and grit, which is the realm that Ron and I also work in, we're seeing that evolve. 
quite a bit, or at least not evolve, but really come to the the forefront and gain a lot of buzz with people that maybe didn't put so much behind mm-hmm. this concept before. So as you've been working in this area for so long, how have you seen this conversation change in the last 15 months? I mean, uh, is it getting better? Are we getting things right, wrong? There's definitely an evolutionary pattern here that I think we've all been forced into and that, you know, there's been more pain and suffering on planet Earth in the last 12 to 15 months than we could have ever imagined. People lost their jobs, they lost their health, they lost loved ones. Everything we valued came under siege. And it happened literally overnight. We had no idea it was coming. We had this invisible killer that we, in the beginning, we had no idea. Was it on counters? Was it on papers? You know, what should you do? Should you go to the grocery store and wash everything? I mean, the scientists were unclear. No one could tell us how to navigate through these minefields of potential catastrophe. And so everyone was kind of forced into a different reflective mode. We were put on the sidelines and now we had to figure out, well, what is life all about? What are we doing here? What really does matter? And out of that, I think has come some really important lessons about life and some strengths out of the confrontation with this monstrous COVID that we've actually now believe, we've always felt that the things that have pushed us the most in life, ultimately, if we overcame them, help us the most. And so COVID, at the end of the day, once we have gotten through this, we're going to pretty much believe we can get through anything. And so it has as strength is the way it actually works when you're exposed to more demand and you accommodate it and you eventually heal from whatever damage it's done and you continue to work to overcome it, you will be stronger and you will be able to carry yourself in a different way for your children, for your for the, those in your company that you represent. Everyone will now be a little different. And I think for the most part, be more resilient, maybe have a little more grit. When I started in the mental toughness area, when I came up with the words mental toughness, people thought I was again a weirdo. What is mental toughness? What does that mean? And because we understood toughness in a lot of ways, physically and emotionally, but not even emotionally so much. But so I really believed in the beginning, I had a kind of a one-dimensional view of this. I spent a lot of time developing this construct of the ideal performance state. I spent a lot of years collecting data around that. And I began to realize that what, what I came to call mental toughness was physical, was emotional, was mental, and was also spiritual. And so it's, I almost had to kind of rename it in my own mind because if you don't have energy and that energy is produced in the cells in the mitochondria of the cells and if you're out of energy you really can't fight the battles mentally and emotionally and you're going to you're going to have real difficulties there's also biomechanical issues in your sport if you don't have biomechanical efficiency you may end up not being able to execute because just the slightest bit of tension in your muscles causes a derailment. That's a biomechanical, which really undermines your ability to perform. And then you have emotionally, all kinds of toxic emotions can come into the picture that were really, that our ancestors heavily relied on because it helped them survive. But anger and fear do not help most athletes and don't help us in life that much to get through a pandemic, for instance. So we have to find a different channel emotionally, hope. We have to dig out and find a way to have optimism and to find positive things, even in days that seem pretty miserable and gloomy. So people had to dig to find an opportunity to be hopeful and maybe become more resilient because for themselves and for their families. 
And uh, all the students who had lost all of their, you know, they love social networking. And when they, now they're at home and they have no connection to their peers, it's forced them to re-examine how important connections to others are and how they treat others and then all the online stuff that goes on and mentally how to focus being in the present and the, you know, the future can bring fear. The past can bring anger. The present is probably the only stress-free place we have. And the more you're in the present, the more you're likely to perform and to be, you know, right there, what I call fully engaged. And, and then spiritually, you have to have a reason for going through this. It forces us all to think, well, what does really matter? And if you get the purpose right and you get your values, your core values in place, now you're ready to go into battle. And all of those, physically, emotionally, that's why you have to eat right, sleep right, take care of yourself, work those positive muscles, reality-based positive muscles. And then you have to really work those muscles of focus and concentration, get your story straight, get that big neural processor between your ears actually looking at reality in a way that gives you all these emotions and helps you see the real opportunities and then be spiritually grounded, most importantly in character. And when you get all that together, if I had understood that in the early years, I wouldn't have written the book called Mental Toughness. It would have been, you know, it's a holistic construct that actually we're all working on every day. And it's the most important thing we do as human beings is to be able to go into tough situations and really most importantly, lead with our character, make sure that we are mobilizing our thinking and this great, this great capacity we have for abstract thinking and for understanding the way the world works and creating stories that really, really resonate with our deepest values and then summon the emotions and then take care of ourselves. Not so that we really can meet our own needs, but because we wanna make a contribution in the world and that's why we're going to fight through this pandemic or fight through this adversity, this accident, the death in a family member. We're not giving up. So the more we do that, I think the better we become. So in some, po- in some way, the pandemic has been a gift, as crazy as that might sound. No, uh, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you touched really briefly on something. I don't know that we have enough time to go on this in depth, but one, I think the gem for me, the book that you wrote that I just feel like, I don't know why everybody doesn't have this at the top of their bookshelf is the power of full engagement and, Mm. and, you know, time management that we all get wrapped up in is not the most important thing. It's actually energy management. And and we need to manage that because you're going to run out of energy before you run out of time. So again, what a, go out and check that book out. Uh, It's a great book, but let me turn the conversation a little Jim to to something, this is a selfish question on my part, and I think you're going to like it, though. And and hang with me, because for the listeners, this will bring us back to a lot of what we've been talking about. You and I, Jim, are both really big fans of the same movie. Lonesome Dove <laughs> is one of my favorite movies ever. And, and, and even beyond that, Lonesome Dove, if you haven't seen it, please go out and watch it. But, but Robert Duvall... As Augustus McRae, he's the greatest. Has, he's has the greatest be... actor for me, and that he 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 literally just loses himself in that part. Oh he my, becomes he, nobody could play that part better. Nobody could play no. that part better. He was Augustus McRae, and so that Robert Duvall is one of my favorite actors, and and I think that was his best role ever. And so let's let's turn this. We talked a lot about legacy. We talked about. What's it going to be like at the end of your life? And so the, the, the best quote to me, the best quote in the, in the movie Lonesome Dove is just before Gus passes away, he's, he's laying in bed and he, he's talking to um, his partner, Captain Call, and he says, by God, Woodrow, it's been quite a party, ain't it? And that's the last words he says as he passes away. And so I'm going to throw this, this is a little bit of a heavy question, Jim. Let me throw this to you. If you had control over that, what would be the last words you would say? You know, that's I, I, that's a great question. It's a very, it's a tough question to come off right at the top of my head. But I would say something like, I just hope I was worthy of this gift, the gift of life. I remember and Saving Private Ryan at the end of that movie, when all those men died to try to save him. And it, when he was there in that 
cemetery and he said, you know, he's just weeping. And his wife comes up to him and says, what's the matter? And he says, I just wonder, was the loss of all of those lives, was my life worth enough for all the people that lost theirs saving me? And so my whole, I, my whole thing, I think, is that, you know, life is a gift. And I just want to make sure that, you know, I did everything I could to to make a contribution and to be worthy of this gift. And I guess that will haunt me until the end. I want to make sure that I'm all used up and I've done it in the right way because it is an enormous gift. And I think we all, the more you realize how short it is and what a remarkable gift it is, you know, I just want to make sure I, I did as much as I could while I was here. Mm. Beautiful. And, you know, Ron opened the can of worms with asking you really difficult, loaded questions, Jim. So I'm just going to piggyback on that and uh, ask you to share with us, which we always we always like to ask our guests, share with us your your biggest failure. What did you what did you learn from it or what do you want to share with people about that? So and this one is, again, it's pretty personal, but I would say my my biggest failure was my divorce. I traveled you know, the world everywhere, every continent with athletes was all over. And because I didn't devote enough time, attention, and really energy to my spouse, and then going through that, and we had three children. And by the time I awakened to it, it was too late. And, And I think for me, that was the most painful period in my life. And I said to myself, I will never become involved in another relationship and get, you know, until I cease to travel and can devote myself fully and, you know, be fully engaged in that relationship. And since I traveled every single year as much as humanly possible, I never did allow myself to get involved in a relationship where I would, and I really feel like that's probably my greatest failure. I did everything I could to try to, you know, we have three miraculous, wonderful sons. But if I could have done anything differently, that would have that would have been it. I'm not sure how I could have built my career in the same way. But that was for me, that was the the most painful and I think my greatest failure. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't. Let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.